Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Black Girl Buddha, a podcast for the insanely woke. It's your host, Lindsay Renee, and today's episode is titled, When They See Us. We're going to talk about the Netflix series on the Central Park Five. It's time to tune in. You ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Hope everyone is doing well and feeling well. I myself have a slight cold I'm trying to get rid of. I went to Atlantic City last week for two days, had a good time, ate some good food, won some money, but then I came back coughing, sneezing, and sniffling. So I apologize if my voice is a little off in today's episode. Now, before we begin, this episode contains some spoilers. So if you haven't watched the newly released Netflix series, the 2012 documentary, or even heard of the 1989 Central Park jogger case, you have been warned. I don't want to ruin this story for anyone who intends to watch the series or anyone who hasn't finished watching the series, but there's definitely some things about this case and series I want to discuss. Now, to give a quick backdrop on the case and time period, in April of 1989, five Harlem boys, Kevin Richardson, Antron McRae, Youssef Salam, Raymond Santana Jr., and Corey Weiss, age 14 to 16 years old, were accused of severely beating and raping 28-year-old Trisha Miley in Central Park. No physical evidence, no fingerprints, no blood, no semen. Only a case built through confessions that were coerced through physical, psychological, and verbal abuse. These babies were convicted by the media long before the courts even got to them. They were convicted of the assault and rape by juries in two separate trials in 1990 and received sentences ranging from 5 to 15 years and spent between 6 and 13 years behind bars. Four out of the five boys were under the age of 16 and spent time at a youth correctional facility. However, the oldest, only 16, was sentenced to an adult prison. In 2002, Mateus Reyes, a convicted murderer and serial rapist, confessed to the assault and rape of Trisha Miley. Reyes was already in prison when he confessed, and DNA evidence, along with specific details about the case, confirmed his story. He was the only perpetrator of this crime. The convictions for the Central Park Five were vacated that same year. Quick fact. The men actually sued New York City in 2003, but the city refused to settle under then-Mayor Michael Bloomberg because the city's lawyers felt that they would win. Could you imagine? The city already fucked up, and now the city's like, well, let's wait a little while because they're going to win, and this is going to be a lot of money. However, after de Blasio became mayor and supported the settlement, the city settled the case. I actually found out about the settlement because I follow Raymond Santana Jr. on Instagram. After watching the documentary years back, I was able to find him through the hashtags because I had posted something about it. And then I'm looking through other hashtags about the Central Park Five, and then I found his page. And so I commented under one of his posts about how sorry I am that he and the other men had to experience this, but also how inspiring their story was and is. He actually commented back and thanked me, liked my post on my page, and we started following each other. 
So over the years, I have been able to kind of catch up and just see through his posts how he and the other men have moved on with their lives and how they are still even fighting the injustices of the criminal justice system. Like they didn't just move on with their lives to the point where they wanted to figure everything and not help anyone. And that's the great thing about this story and these men. Now, the 1989 New York City, I cannot remember. I was only two a baby. But Reverend Al Sharpton even referred to New York City as America's capital of racial violence during this time. New York City was underpoliced and overly racist. Hashtag still is. I think back to three years before the Central Park Five to the 1986 case of Michael Griffith, a young black man who along with two of his friends were beaten by a white mob after their car broke down in the Howard Beach neighborhood of Queens. Michael was chased onto Shore Parkway where he was hit and killed by a car. Another case occurred a few months after the Central Park Five. Yousef Hawkins, a 16-year-old black student, was murdered by a white mob in the Bensonhurst neighborhood of Brooklyn. Yousef had gone to Bensonhurst that night with his friends to inquire about a used car. The mob believed he had dated a neighborhood girl and ambushed the boys once they reached the block. After his murder, police said that he had not in any way been involved with the neighborhood girl whom the killers believed he was dating. And even if he was, does that mean he deserved to be beaten to death? Definitely not. Now, getting to the When They See Us series, I told myself I wasn't going to watch it. Like, I'm good. Because I know it's it's something by Ava DuVernay, and with whatever she produces and or directs, she makes you feel. This is the woman that's behind Selma, 13th, Queen Sugar, The Red Line, so many different projects, and I'm just like, nah, I can't do this right now. And I think the fact that it happened in my city made it personal. The fact that it happened to young black and brown boys made it even more personal because it's like, don't fuck with the already forgotten and ignored. Black and brown boys and girls have it twice as hard and this is the very last thing any child should ever have to go through. The very day it premiered, you had articles, tweets, and posts circling on social media about how triggering this series was and to proceed with caution. And for one day, one whole day, I did stay away. But the day after it premiered, I actually watched the series. When They See Us is a four-part series that takes you through the criminal justice system. In part one, we're dealing with police aggression, arrest, and precinct behavior. This was the part that made me think of my own eyewitness accounts of seeing police officers fuck with the boys in my neighborhood. You see the boys walking back from the park, basketballs and Gatorades in hand, and next thing you know, a squad car comes up and makes them get on the gate. They're extremely aggressive, and they pat them down and ask them about a crime happening 10 minutes ago, but 10 blocks away. And when one of the boys wants to make the cop feel like shit for accusing them, he gets roughed up or even taken into custody. The interrogation scenes in this first part are very heartbreaking. That disgusting good cop, bad cop act. Seeing grown-ass men beat on terrified boys. Pitting boys who don't know each other against each other, all on the promise of going home. Even the pitting against siblings. You see this in the scene with Kevin Richardson and his sister and parent against child. You see this in the scene where Antron McCray's father, who initially defended him, only then backpedals after speaking to a cop, and then the cop hints at the father's own criminal past, so you know the father is now thinking, okay, have my child confess so he could just go home and I can keep my job, right? You see the survival mode really kick in for a father trying to maintain his job, but also the realization of a child seeing that my natural born protector cannot protect me. 
Something I also noticed was the small scenes where you see the police officers of color who heard the remarks from their white colleagues that were racist and or hinted at something unethical getting ready to go down, and they were very uncomfortable, but also silent. And this reminded me that, you know, one, I'm glad that we do have, you know, that color representation within the field, but also that no matter how much they try to, you know, preach that brotherhood that cops all have, bump that. There will always be this us versus them mentality. You know, it's an illusion. Yeah, you guys all put on the same uniform, but they will always see you differently than they see their white colleagues. And granted, there will always be a small percentage of white officers who do not think this way. But once again, they are a small percentage compared to the larger percentage that do think this way and act out on it on a regular basis. In part two, we're dealing with the court system and bail. So you're seeing the scenes of who can and cannot afford to make bail, the importance of having a lawyer who can not just communicate, but advocate and prove your innocence. You see this in a scene where the prosecution is reviewing all of the legal representation each boy has, and they're kind of like, oh, this is a breeze. And even with the part where you see that Yousef Salam's family has a divorce attorney for a criminal defense case. You know, this case is clearly out of his scope. He's used to dealing with people who no longer want to be married, not people who have been accused of a serious crime and are fighting for their lives. In part three, we're dealing with juvenile detention and parole. So you see the struggles of a family trying to support their loved ones behind bars and themselves, never really finding that balance, always holding that guilt. Because it's hard when you're poor, and it's hard when you feel like you should have been there or done something to stop all this. You see the struggles of finding a job, trying to go back to school, have a relationship, and all the shit that can get you put back behind bars that's even out of your control. You see this in a scene with Raymond Santana Jr. and I believe his parole officer. And they're, and, yeah, they're at a diner and he's explaining their rules to Raymond. Eventually, after a while, you see Raymond's character turn to street life. And shit, we all got a relative or two. I got a cousin. I say hi from a distance because we know what life he has chosen to get himself involved into. I don't want to get too close because mm -mm, no thank you. No ma'am, no ham, no turkey. But yeah, these brothers come home from their bid and they try to do right by society, their family, and themselves. And after a while, you see how discouraged turns to desperation. And sometimes it's easier to just kind of fall into the trap of street life because it's constantly in your face. And despite it being wrong, street life is offering you a job and money. And you'll always have those folks who try to redirect and intervene because they know it's bad, but they also know that you try to do good in a system that sets you up to fail. And in part four, we're dealing with incarceration. So we're seeing the good and bad of correctional officers, the prolonged effects of abuse in solitary confinement, and also what happens when an inmate transfers from prison to prison or even receives devastating news with no support system around them. Going back to the correctional officers, there was one, I swear, every time, every single time, let me know if you can do anything for me, everywhere. Let me know if you can do anything for me. Like, I'm going to need you to go do your job, sir. Corey is getting beat up because he basically orchestrated this shit. And there he is. Let me know if you can do anything for me. 
Corey is there pleading with the nurse to help and she's looking all terrified. Why? Because guess who's there? Mr. Let me know if you could do anything for me. The fuck? And all this was for some snacks. That's all he wanted. Snacks. Sir, you got a whole salary. You get paid every two weeks. You can't buy your own fucking snacks? You can. Like... I don't even want to think about it no more. Because he was just so sadistic and evil. Like, you know, COs have to exert some type of power over the prisoners because they are outnumbered and they don't want any riot uplift. They don't want any, um, what do you call it? Um, uprisings and riots. Cool. But this guy, like seeing how he acted and then by the grace of God, you saw a really nice CO and you were like, thank the heavens. There are people who do their job the right way. When I watched this series, I couldn't help but think of my parents, especially my mom. My mom was, my parents were helicopter parents, but my mom was, I mean, just hovering. And, you know, they put the fear and knowledge into me early on because when you're black and poor, there's no room for luxuries or mistakes. You do as you're told because anything can happen, especially with innocent distractions and choices. These boys just wanted one little moment and these one little moments changed their whole entire lives. One moment of wanting to be part of the crowd. One moment of choosing your boys over the girl you like. One moment of wanting to run with the big kids. Those moments, small, choices and decisions that have no malice in them whatsoever, changed their whole entire lives. I also couldn't help but think of my former students, members of my family, myself, my partner, my future children, the names I don't know of the innocent and wrongly convicted, in and out of prison, and the names I do know, like Chanel Lewis, the young man who I feel was wrongly convicted and recently sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for the murder of Karina Vetrano. I also think of Khalif Browder, a young man who spent three years in Rikers awaiting a trial after he was accused for stealing a backpack at 16. His family was unable to make his bail. Khalif maintained his innocence and refused to take a plea bargain that would have released him. He was released when the prosecutor's case was found to be lacking evidence. Two years later, after his release, Khalif committed suicide. Many believe his suicide was the direct result of mental, physical, and sexual abuse sustained in prison. Stories like this are both unimaginable, but the possible reality for us black and brown folks. We are going against a judicial system that has never humanized us. And law enforcement who values their egos and performance quotas more than our rights, more than our justice, and more than our freedom. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll continue on with the current topic and the changes that have happened so far because of this series, the good changes that have happened so far. Also, some tips if you are ever stopped by police or taken into police custody. So stay tuned. my break to get some water and review my upcoming notes but right now I'm a little bothered I just saw a tweet that praised the men for all they had to endure but posed the question why does Corey always dress down 
when the others mostly wear suits for events, interviews, etc. I don't have a Twitter, but I wish I did so I could reply. See, what we're not going to do is worry about a grown-ass man's attire. A grown-ass innocent man who spent years in prison being forced to wear a jumpsuit or whatever else was mandated. He didn't get to decide every day what he wanted to wear, and now he does. So leave him alone. I don't care what he wears, and neither should anyone else. Period. You hear that tea? Period. We got real issues to worry about, like prison reform. About to sign up for Twitter right now and write that to that person. All right, welcome back. Um, before we continue on, real quick, I just want to say one more thing. I need my black and brown folks to stop trying to avoid jury duty. Like, are we forgetting or just not caring about the history of the all-white jury being employed to nearly guarantee convictions of people of color for centuries in this country? Like, come on. And I know there will always be people who feel like, oh, the system is rigged. It doesn't matter. Do not think that way because you actually become part of the problem with that mentality. Could you imagine the Central Park 5 case in 2019 with a diverse jury? Man, jury deliberations would have been done in like five minutes. They would have returned with a not guilty and fuck this nonsense verdict. Done. Simple. The point is, when we increase diversity with race, gender, and socioeconomic status, we're going to get fairer trials and better outcomes. It is our civic responsibility and our representation matters. Believe that and always do your part. Now, I'm glad this story is getting attention again, and this time with social media platforms involved even more, because social media doubles, if not triples, the exposure. Netflix tweeted that When They See Us has been the most watched series in the U.S. every day since it premiered, and that was two weeks ago. That is amazing. Now, if there's one thing social media knows how to do, it's find out everything on someone and get them canceled. Elizabeth Letterer, if that's how you pronounce it, and if I'm wrong, I don't give a damn because this bitch was wrong. The prosecutor in the case who plays a big role in the videotaped confessions that the beaten, starved, and confused five struggle to make is still an active prosecutor in the New York County DA's office, and she works at Columbia University where she teaches law. Well, she did work there until last week where black Columbia students protested and she resigned. Gotta go. <laughs> you tight. I wonder if she was teaching her students how to lie to the jury as she did when she told the jury that during the 1990 trial, the hair of the jogger was found on one of the boys' articles of clothing. Mm. Moving on, Linda Fairstein, the chief Manhattan sex crimes prosecutor at the time who was involved in the case against the five, is facing heavy scrutiny and backlash. After the conviction, Fairstein continued to be a prosecutor, becoming an award-winning novelist, writing over 20 books, and has even sat on a number of prestigious boards. However, Twitter users through the hashtag Cancel Linda Fairstein, which began trending after the show's release, have called for the immediate stop of publication of Fairstein's books and for every one of her cases to be re-examined. She was dropped by her publisher, and even now, Fairstein has closed down her social media accounts, was stripped of the 1993 Woman of the Year honor she received from Glamour magazine, and has resigned from the board of nonprofit organizations Safe Horizon, God's Love We Deliver, and the Joyful Heart Foundation. 
she also resigns from the board of her alma mater, Vassar College. Still standing behind her actions, in her recent comments, she stated that Ava DuVernay and, quote, her lies are behind it all, end quote. Girl, bye. Now, before we wrap up, I just want to send major kudos to the American Civil Liberties Union for the following tips that you can also find on their website, aclu.org. Okay, so you've been stopped by the police in public. What are your rights? I'll give you three for now. One, you have the right to remain silent. For example, you do not have to answer any questions about where you are going, where you are traveling from, what you are doing, or where you live. If you wish to ex- if you wish to ex- if you wish to exercise your right to remain silent, say so out loud. In some states, you may be required to provide your name if asked to identify yourself, and an officer may arrest you for refusing to do so. Two, stay calm. When you're calm, you're able to remember a lot more things and details. Don't run, resist, or obstruct the officers. Do not lie or give false documents. Keep your hands where the police can see them. I'll even add this. If you're reaching for something out of sight, like a license, a wallet, announce it out loud twice. Three, if you are arrested or detained, say you wish to remain silent and ask for a lawyer immediately. Don't give any explanations or excuses. Don't sign anything or make any decisions without legal representation. You have a right to make a local phone call. Side note, I'm gonna need people to remember telephone numbers by heart again. It seems like everybody's all, it's in my phone, I can't remember. Nah, go back to the old days and remember at least five numbers. The police cannot listen if you call a lawyer. They can and often do listen if you call anyone else. Lastly, ACLU's website offers a lot more tips, including what to do if you believe your rights were violated by an officer and what to do if you're recording police brutality. Also, they provide more scenarios ranging from the police are at my door to I've been pulled over by the police. So head over to ACLU.org and get your eyes on this information. Absorb it and pass it on. So this concludes another episode of Black Girl Buddha, a podcast for the insanely woke. I thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to rate and review the series on iTunes and Google Play and share it with your nearest and dearest. This helps to get the show more exposure, which is always a good thing. The podcast is now available on Spotify, another option for listeners who enjoy the streaming app. Follow me at Black Girl Buddha on Instagram to keep the convo going. Tell me your thoughts on when they see us and use the hashtag BlackGirlBuddhaPod so I can find your post. And lastly, head over to BlackGirlBuddha.com to access the show notes and shop for the latest items at the BGB store. I'll see you next week. Take care.